listening to the Cumberland Road, and I am TJ Melanoski. The following is a faith conversation with Jody Rush, the Director of Children and Family Ministry for the Cumberland Presbyterian denomination. Jody has spent her life helping and nurturing children in the Christian faith and creating spaces for them to lead and serve. Enjoy this faith journey on Cumberland Road with Jody Rush. You get to work with the most amazing and beautiful people in the church. Who do you spend the most of your time with? Um, I work with children, really birth through the sixth grade. I guess I get to spend the most time with those that are around kindergarten through the sixth grade because they, you know, will attend events um, and things like that, that, that I have. So what is your uh, title and role in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church? My title is Coordinator of Children and Family Ministry for the Discipleship Ministry Team. Um, and so that's that's where I get to um, experience. Um, I actually, I usually say that I mainly work with children, but I also work with ch- the people that love those children right. because a lot of the times, I am planning events for teachers and pastors, parents, and things like that. So, so I get to do um, maybe equal portions of that. But my favorite time is when I'm at an event and the kids are there. So, working with children for as long as you have, what do you think the greatest lesson that young people have taught you? Goodness, I, you know, every day that you're with them, you're going to learn something <laughs> new. That's or every moment, you know, right. I hope. I think, I think the thing that I continue to be amazed at is children's ability to lead and to serve. Um, sometimes that does not get nurtured. You know, Mm -hmm. but when it does, it is amazing the way children can rise to the occasion um, at all ages. They really have such a willingness and gifts at, you know, at every age. So it's um, amazing when, you know, we let them show that and, and, and to do that, whatever it is. How do you help young people? find their gifts, find the things that they enjoy doing, um, explore their capabilities. In your role within the church, what do those settings look like for youth to explore, for children to explore and discover? Mm -hmm. I do think it takes some time. So uh, uh, observation, some time spent with the children. Um, so for me, like the event that I plan for is called Children's Fest. And we do have children reading scripture and doing leadership roles at that event. So I have to rely on 
um, people, you know, adults in the churches telling me about what they have observed from their children, um, because I'm not with them all the time. But um, observation, time spent with them, talking with them, they will tell you what they're about if you let them, <laughs> you know. Um, I know in our church at the Brinhaven Church, the church I attend, um, we've had some really good readers and they love to read scripture in, in church and um, that it is just the most beautiful thing to hear them read the scripture. It, it is my favorite day <laughs> when that happens. They're now teenagers and they're still doing that, but they started at a very young, young age reading, reading scriptures. And um, that was just a parent saying, you know, my child said how much they like to do that. And then it has to go down through, uh, you know, um, the children's minister tells this, the pastor, you know, and then it happens. But um, the congregation um, then also has to be open to it. And so you hope you find find that positive reinforcement, you know, as well. Within the Cumberland Presbyterian denomination, uh, through the role that you serve, what is available in terms of resources? You'd made mention to events, but for those who are listening that may be seeking out um, ideas and how to encourage discipleship in young people, what advice do you have? What resources are available? Well, my number one gig, so to speak, and uh, favorite day of the year is, is I already mentioned, is Children's Fest. Um, that's an event for children K through sixth grade and most often happens at Bethel University. We, I say that because occasionally in, in years past, prior to COVID, we um, were beginning to um, spread our wings a little bit and had the event in other places. But right now we're we're back at Bethel having that event. Um, and I love that event because I believe um, it allows children. I mean, we plan it, like I say, with them being in leadership roles. Um, it is not an event planned for adults and, oh, the children get to do the best they can, you know, this is an event for them. Um, it's like vacation Bible school on steroids is what we say, because it's <laughs> one day and we try to pack it all in, you know. Um, but, you know, it, it is um, a great event for smaller churches to bring. I love it when I have a church come and bring one child because they have a hard time, they feel, doing programming for, you know, back at home when you only have one child or two children or mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So that's a, a wonderful thing about the event. Now, the downside of the event for me is that it's, it, you know, it's limiting, you know, not everybody can come because of the distance. Uh, as far as other resources, um, we um, and myself, we're always willing to come and lead workshops. We call them discipleship blueprints. And there's a few set ones out there about like reviving your Sunday school, you know, those kinds of things. But pretty much 
if you tell us a topic that you're needing um, work on, we'll we'll do it. Right. <laughs> we say, oh, there's this set of blueprints, but but really we will um, customize whatever you need. And that's really a, a good thing. And, you know, of course, we can do that again for a few years. So we're coming, we're kind of trying to um, figure out what churches are needing now, because it's different, mm-hmm. different now than than before. Um, uh, most churches are kind of trying to figure out what they're doing now, you know, so we do, I do a lot of talking on the phone, believe it or not, and emailing and that kind of thing. Um, I think that's, uh, that's the main resource we have, have right now. We do have a, a Linton resource right now, a path through Lent that, um, that we're, we've created and written. So we, um, you know, we do those kinds of things. For people who have not been connected to uh, Children's Fest or maybe not aware of it, mm-hmm. what time of the year should they uh, kind of be planning and looking ahead uh, to attend? Um, that event typically is taking place in July, around the middle of July this year. It's July the 15th, 2023, and um, it's like a Saturday event, 9 to 3.30. Um, Those that are coming and want to spend the night on Friday night, we do have um, the ability to house folks in the dorms um, at Bethel. And that's another fun experience, (laughs) not for the faint of heart, of course. (laughs) But occasionally I have, you know, churches say, oh, do I just drop the children off? I'm like, no, you do not drop the children off. Um, No, but the adults and the children stay in the dorm together, and then they get up and eat breakfast in the cafeteria, and then we have our activities, and that's a big deal. The kids love eating in the cafeteria, um, you know, and that kind of thing. So anyway, it's a good day. Jody, how did you get into children's ministry? Well, um, I it, I attended the McKenzie Church um, in McKenzie, Tennessee, growing up, um, and they started asking me to uh, provide leadership at a very young age. I was in high school leading a four and five-year-old Sunday school class that had nine little boys in it. Uh, you know, I think, I, I, I guess I thought they saw some gifts in me. I think they really just didn't want, you know, I was the only one that was willing to do that. No, but um, I led, I was the director of vacation Bible school when I was in high school wow. and I served as an elder at, at that church in high school. And, you know, I thought every church did those things. You know, I, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't go to camp. I wasn't a camp person that didn't appeal to me. They would have loved for me to have gone and would have encouraged me (laughs) to go. That wasn't my thing. Did you you try camp? No, 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 I didn't even, I didn't even try. Um, and we didn't have a lot of children or a lot of teenagers in our church. Uh, in the McKenzie Church at the time. So, um, but I don't really remember how that began. 
it just began and I just loved it. I remember just thinking all the time how I was going to plan vacation Bible school and what decorations we were going to use to, you know, go along with that story and how we were going to tell the story to the children and, you know, what curriculum we were going to pick. I mean, oh, it just made me, it just, I loved it. So Um, you're dreaming and planning these things as Mm -hmm. a teenager. Yes. And asking adults in the church, would you, would you be a teacher at vacation Bible school? I mean, I was recruiting, I was doing everything and they were doing it. I mean, it was, you know, and I didn't know that that was that unusual. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You had until no- later in life, then I realized, oh, <laughs> this doesn't happen in all churches. So, so I think that really does feed into me really encouraging children to do this at a young age and encouraging churches to do that because, you know, you want to encourage that spark that might be there. At a, at a young age, because you don't know what, you know, might happen with that, you know, as you go along. But um, yeah, it's nice. It was nice to be trusted. Um, and I think that's a big thing is is providing that trust and that opportunity. So, yeah, but those were amazing years. And so then I went to Bethel um, College and I and I started off in elementary ed because I didn't think you could do Christian education, you know, for a living. Um, And then I met Javier Ramsey (laughs) at Bethel, and she was teaching the Christian education courses. And she got me started with that. And within a year, I changed my major. And that became my, my path then. And Javier, she would come to the cafeteria and sign us up for her Christian education, all the other folks that were in, you know, going into ministry or just anybody that she thought might take her class. Um, she would come, we would see her coming into the cafeteria when it was time to be signing up for classes and she would be saying, you know, getting us signed up. So anyway, it was amazing. <laughs> all right. Let's go back to when you were a teenager and you accepted the responsibility of being a Sunday school teacher to nine little boys. So what was going on in your mind? That's a pretty big, (laughs) that's a pretty big class, you know, I mean, regardless of boys, girls, or mix. Yeah. um, That's a, that's a pretty big class, pretty big responsibility. Can you recall what, what your first impressions were? You know, I don't remember any fear at all. I don't. I may have been at the time, but I don't remember. I was just so caught up in the fact that, oh, I had a room and I could decorate it and I could get prepared for them and we were going to do this activity. I mean, I was just, the planning part of it was so exciting to me. And then they responded well. I mean, they, they, they did. Not every Sunday, of course, and I didn't have all of them at the same time all the time. But, um, yeah, it was just, um, that's what I remember the most. I might've been scared to death at the time, but I do not remember that at all. So you found your, your niche, uh, your calling really early. Mm -hmm. 
did you use curriculum at that time? Or did you oh, create yeah. your own? Okay. A little bit of both, I would say. I mean, I used whatever the church provided at, and, and then embellished it. <laughs> <laughs> right. You, you adapted it to yeah. the context that you were in yeah. and who you were at the time. Yeah, exactly. You were a young Christian as well, though. So I would imagine that you were also learning about what it means to be a disciple and the scriptures along with the children. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, then I wasn't attending my Sunday school class, Mm -hmm. you know. So, but I, you know, it is really true. That is that cliche that they say is you do learn so much by teaching. So um, I felt like, you know, I, I was learning right along, you know, with them. So it it sounds like that you grew up (laughs) in a church that believed in, in leadership and believed in children. Um, What, what people, what faces stand out uh, from that time in your life where you got encouragement, where you felt empowered, where you felt um, important within mm-hmm. the church, people that Dur- raised you up? Yeah, during that stage um, at the McKinsey Church, definitely my pastor, Bob Prosser, um, he was the one who asked me to be an elder. Um and I'm sure um, was behind the scenes um, encouraging others to ask me to do all the the other things that I was doing. Um, I made friends with a dear lady named Lil True, who was the church secretary, um, and someone who had been a Christian educator when she was younger. Um, and she and I spent a lot of time um, planning and, you know, doing that kind of thing. I would go to her house and she wasn't teaching, but she would let me spread it all out and, uh, talk about what I was going to do and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And there was such a, you know, she was probably in her late sixties, early seventies at the time. And I was a teenager. So there was a great, you know, age difference there, but we, you know, we had a, um, uh, that interest of planning and doing Christian education in common. And there's lots of other people in that church. I hate to even start naming names, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, for sure, those two. What was it like to walk into a session meeting with <laughs> elders and you had a generation or more apart between you and the other elders? Um, you know, that was a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) I, again, I know this, I don't mean this to sound cocky at all. I I don't, but I don't remember being that afraid. Um, I think because there was such an atmosphere of acceptance, you know, they had asked me to do this. So I must be able to do this. You know, so I think that's how I kind of entered it. I don't remember. I, you know, I was quiet to begin with. You know, (laughs) I know that might be hard for people to believe who know me now, but, um, but I think I was listening and learning. So it was a good quiet, you know, kind of thing. 
But, um, you know, I, I began there to see the other side of, of ministry when hard decisions had to be made. You know, I would, I remember a few session meetings coming home very upset, you know, about things that had happened and were said, just normal things that right. um, I saw behind the, the curtain, so to speak, you know. Right. So, um, but anyway, it was a, an amazing opportunity. Now that I'm married to a minister, I will probably never get to serve as an elder again. So <laughs> it was a, it was in a, you know, it it makes it even more amazing that I got to do that. But when we had we, you know, ordain elders, I do get to go lay my hands on and our that's, you know, part of the service because I am an ordained elder. So um every time that happens, I I think back um yeah. to that amazing opportunity. It makes me emotional to think about it really. I would imagine that um in your teenage years, well, I still have some of this, but that idealism of what the church could be, what it mm. can achieve, what it can do in mission and in service. And sometimes when we have meetings, boy, it 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 cramps that up at times. Did you, looking back, did you have any of those feelings or thoughts of how we sometimes get in our own way when it comes to I don't the think, organizational aspect? Yeah, I don't think then I did. I, I think that started happening <laughs> later in life. <laughs> that was a pretty amazing experience, and it didn't, mm -hmm. I don't think that, like I said, I had a few times when I would come home upset or, you know, hurt that a decision had to be made a certain way or, you know, things like that. But, um, but I don't think I, I started having those kinds of things until, you know, later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you had a little more experience yeah. under your belt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jody, was there a time in your life when you were younger, when you were small, where you felt the closest to Christ, where you felt like the beginning of a relationship with God? Or are you one of those who just cannot recall a time when there was a, I don't know, a feeling of absence or, or a lack of a relationship? I would probably say the, la the latter of those. Um, right. before, before we... We're in McKenzie. Um, my family actually lived in Chicago, Illinois. I was born there, lived there till I was five. And my parents had moved there when they were uh, just married. They lived in the Gleason, Tennessee area growing up. And my dad moved there to find work. Well, both of them were working. And they went to the only Cumberland Presbyterian church in Chicago and this church was made up of about 30 or 40 people. Maybe I, you know, I don't know. I don't remember that closely, but I, I've seen pictures. I think it was called the West Side Cumberland Presbyterian Church. But anyway, it was made up of all of these people from the South who had moved to Chicago to work. And they were Cumberland Presbyterians. And so it was, it, so I remember in the basement having Sunday school 
And I was literally the only child in the church because my parents were significantly younger than everybody else that was there. But I still remember the little cards with the pictures of Jesus, you know, and the story on the back. You know, I still remember that. And I was younger than five. So um, I certainly know that there's been times along the way where that, you know, that feeling of closeness has um, been very present, but I don't think it's like, oh, this is the moment where I first knew Christ, because I feel like that was always present for me. The McKenzie Church obviously noticed the leadership and the gifts within you uh, during your teenage years. Did you have time to be a teenager? Did you have time to get oh, into goodness, mischief? Yes. yes, I was in the <laughs> band at school. I had friends. I didn't just plan vacation Bible school, but I'm not <laughs> going to talk about the mischief I got into. But, <laughs> but um, oh, yes, absolutely. I did all the teenage things as well. <laughs> when you were a student at Bethel College, now Bethel University, yes. And you started getting into the Christian education courses and and that being recognized as a ministry. That was during a time of of some change to where you were probably on the front end, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of on the front end, uh, a pioneer of sorts of having Christian education as a role, as a function, as an employee within a local church. What was that like? Because there wasn't really anything to like point back to or to reference. You are exactly right. Because um, like I said, when the my freshman year, I was an elementary ed ma- you know, major and was so I was taking education classes. But um just continued to feel such a call to do Christian ed and continue to have people like I've already mentioned say that's what you really should be doing and just um to the point that I went in between my freshman year my sophomore year to the lady and I don't even remember her name anymore but she was head of the education department at the time and told her that I was going to be changing my major to Christian education and she, this was the first time I guess I'd had a roadblock put up, you know, because the McKenzie church was saying, do this, do that. You've got, you know, you're good at this, you know? And I, when, she, when I told her that she was like, why in the world are you doing that? And then I tried to explain it to her. And at the end, she was like, you will never find work and you will be back to me. That was her response. And I was like, I got out of there and I thought I was just stubborn enough, you know, that I thought, (laughs) oh, no, no, I will not be back to you. That's for sure. But um, but anyway, it was the first and and there and you're right. There was no um, like (laughs) uh, there wasn't like a Christian education director in every CP church, you know, so I did have a lot of wonder about how this was going to work out. So I I didn't have a master plan for that. Um, And there's been a lot of times along the way. (laughs) 
I that I thought, okay, I don't guess I'm I'm gonna get to be doing my Christian education work, you know, here in this place I found myself. But you know, God is always kind of found. It, it's always kind of worked out. I would imagine because we can we can see it today that if a person shows gifts within the church, they're automatically pushed towards ministry to like the word and the sacraments. And there are other roles within the church, Cumberland Presbyterian Church and beyond. Um, I would imagine that you really face like, oh, well, okay, Jody has a calling and it looks like ministry, sounds like ministry, so it must be ministry to the Word and the sacraments. Did you ever face that? You know, not not back then, not when I was in college, because that wasn't as big of a um, conversation happening then, you know. In recent years, that has been more because we have had so many um, people do that, go that route. And I think that's great, but that is not something that not one time have I felt like I needed to do, wanted to do, was called to do. Um, yeah. I feel like I've had plenty of opportunities and work to do, um, doing children's ministry. Um, and, and that just wasn't where I felt God was calling me. You finished up at Bethel and you're this newly minted graduate with a Christian education degree under your arm, then what happened? Well, um, before that even happened, I got married. <laughs> so, um, so I also had a husband who was headed to seminary um, in Memphis, and um, and that's what I'm saying. You know, at that point, I wasn't exactly sure what that meant for me. But then I um, got a call from the um, bookstore. We had a bookstore on, when we still had, you know, the center on Union Avenue. And I was asked to be the Christian education consultant for the new 800 line what is that bookstore oh the bookstore had an 1-800 line back then you need you know you would have to call long distance to call the bookstore and order your stuff so okay. they put in an 800 line where anybody it, across the country could call in for free see you're so young tj you know that doesn't uh, none of this makes sense <laughs> to you i'm sorry no, but I... anyway so if they wanted to order curriculum and they needed to say talk about you know we've got this many kids in this class and this and they you know they needed to discuss their christian education needs they would call the 1-800 the line and i would answer <laughs> and talk to them about you know Sunday school curriculum and the other books that we had in the bookstore that might, you know, they might be looking for a study for adults. And, you know, so I worked in a little cubicle, answered the telephone. It was great. It was a great job. I learned a lot about resources and about the churches and people in the churches. And yeah. 
Well, I so. picture you like wearing, <laughs> you know, a phone, a headset, I do in the do cubicle. That sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem was they weren't wireless back then. And so I would have to, if I needed to run out into the store to find a book to talk about, I would be connected, you know. And so I got to the point where that wasn't too much fun <laughs> wearing a headset, but. They were old fashioned back then. <laughs> <laughs> How long did you do that? Well, the three years that Kip was in seminary. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I imagine at that time, then you probably really did get um, a good idea of what was out there mm-hmm. well, for children, youth, and adults in terms of Christian education in general. Yes. And the the other interesting thing was Kip was wanting to go into youth ministry. He wasn't interested in the pastoral ministry at the time. So here he had a person that wanted to do youth ministry and another one that wanted to do children's ministry. And that wasn't even much of a thing in the whole denomination. So we were quite the pair at the at that time, you know. But um after seminary, he was hired as the youth director at the Elmire Chapel Church in Longview, Texas. And um, so off we went. And um, a little bit later, um, I was hired as the Christian ed director at the Marshall um, CP Church um, in Marshall, Texas, which was, you know, just a 30 minute drive from Elmire Chapel. So, and how long were you at Marshall? About three years. Um, yes, it was great. It was a great experience. That was another place where they just let me, you know, do my thing. <laughs> they were, um, there had a lot of great volunteers there. And they, you know, had a big vacation Bible school. They just, they needed somebody to, um you know, just kind of oversee all of that and, and help them with that. So, so that was a great um, thing. The, the exciting part about that for me was how I got hired. Um, Roy Blakeburn was the pastor of the Marshall Church. And um, I didn't know Roy at the time. I just knew him as an amazing theologian you know, um, very outspoken, amazing preacher, you know, very involved in denominational things. And I'd never really met him in person. But one day we're, you know, in Longview at our house and he calls and he says, I want to come talk to you. Um, And I'm like, what in the world, you know? (laughs) Um, But anyway, he came and he said, to me, he said, Jody, I am Christian education illiterate, and I need you to help me. Mm. And, and so, oh, uh, yeah, so I got to work with him, and that was an amazing, amazing time to get to know who he was and you know, <laughs> he was an early morning person and I was too. So I would be at the, come into the church and, uh, you know, vacation Bible school would be coming up. And so I'd go into his office and I would just start rattling off all this stuff, you know, blah, 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 you know, 
he would listen, he would nod, he would, you know, he, he would say, go and do, you know, but he, he, he really didn't know anything about Christian education, but um, anyway, he, he was an, a, just, I loved working with him in that congregation. It was a great time. It's pretty astute to be able to look, you know, inwardly and recognize what you do well and and maybe what you don't do as well and what your shortcomings are. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty awesome that I don't want to make it sound like a a role or a job fell into your lap, but you were actually approached. You didn't have to go and seek. Yeah, right. I mean, like I said, I was working at the hospital in Longview um, Mm. because like I said, you know, I wasn't earlier. I said, you know, I wasn't always sure what I was going to be doing with this Christian education degree and calling. Um, And I sometimes had to wait and be patient for that to happen, you know. So as you're leaning into your role uh, as a Christian educator there at the Marshall Church, what were some of the things that you learned immediately? What were some of the things that you've continue to take with you uh, beyond that into the role that you have now? Because this was the first, well, I mean, you've received affirmation after affirmation, you know, as early as a teenager, but this was a true affirmation of people outside your home church and outside your circle of friends and family that were affirming the strengths and the gifts and the abilities that you had. Yeah, and have. I don't want to speak always in past, past tense. <laughs> um, I definitely, like I said, that church had a lot of volunteers that were ready to serve. I mean, they had a Christian education committee that had probably eight to ten people on it. They would show up for meetings. They would actually do what you suggested they do. I mean, it was just a I really, um, and I think I learned how to work with volunteers there. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I had to do it all on my own or nor should I do that, you know, because that would have been bad for that church because they, they um, had people ready to serve. And um, so that, and, and again, I was still pretty young working with, you know, um, folks that were a little bit older than me, you know, um, so that, but, but it was a good, good experience. They responded well and, um, yeah. (laughs) What other places have you served in the Cumberland Presbyterian church? Well, um, we, um, this is not in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, but I have to mention it because it's kind of odd. <laughs> Damn, it was, I, this is where it kind of, I swerved off the road a little bit, <laughs> um, but it was a great opportunity. But we, so when we let, um, we ended up at one point in Columbus, Mississippi at the Bersheba, um CP Church, where Kip was the pastor. And, um, there wasn't a Christian education role for me there, you know, um, so other than volunteer, of course, but I'm talking, you know, a paid position. So it ended up, and I don't even remember how it all worked. I think um, there was an ecumenical ministry on the campus of 
the Mississippi University for Women, which was in Columbus. And they, um, there was a, like I said, an ecumenical ministry of which Cumberlands were a part of, um, as well as the Episcopal Church and the Lutheran Church and like a couple others. Well, anyway, they were in need of a campus minister for that ministry. And so I was hired for that um, and worked that job for probably four years. Um, with college students on campus. And that was not something I saw coming. <laughs> that was outside of my children's ministry <laughs> comfort zone. But but I learned, um, you know, I used my skills of planning once again. And, you know, those college students showed up every Tuesday night and they really needed just a place to hang out and somebody to listen and, and we went on retreats and did, you know, all of those kinds of things. So, um, but yeah, that was a, a place where I served, you know, that another thing I, I just, I never dreamed I would, you know, be doing. But then I guess the next spot would be at Brent Haven. We moved from Mississippi to Brentwood for, and Kip is the pastor at the Brent Haven Church. And I was hired as the Christian Ed Director and did that for a few years before moving into my role with the denomination. Out of all the vocational experiences that you've had that has led up to where you are now, what do you think has been the greatest learning experience, the greatest skill that you've developed that is helping you? Well, I, I think as, you know, we've, talked about is each one of those jobs were very different. Mm -hmm. Each one of those roles were very different. I mean, working in the the bookstore, you know, working with college students, you know, all the different things has led to, especially now after COVID or after, you know, we're at this stage of it. Um, you just, you have to be so flexible and adaptable and ready to change. But, you know, those are, there's, you know, those basic skills and things I know about Christian education and about planning and about people and volunteers. There's some basics, but you've got to be willing to um, apply them in different ways because um, especially now the world has changed so much. The churches are changing so much. So, you know, I can't do um, things exactly the way I did it back in that little, the Sunday school classroom with nine kids. But some of those basic things are still true. Um, but, but you have to be willing to um, use those basic principles that you know in a new way. As a minister, it may be part of my personality. I live in my head a lot. And I was wondering when we convey images and concepts about God and Christianity and Jesus, it's easy to become technical. <laughs> That's probably not even the right word, but theological, deep theological in our language. How do we share with young people who God is? what God represents, and what God means in our life. 
that is concrete, that's real. Because I think it's easy for us to move into the abstract and the metaphor real quickly. And that doesn't always translate very well for a first grader. Yeah, that's that's a hard one. Um, Language is very important. And the use of language that um, is more common to a first grader is important. And and some people really struggle (laughs) on how to how to do that. You know, I think you have to be willing to connect to that person of a different age, you know, um, and, and, and try to watch what your, your language is. I, I don't know if I have any, um, magic wand to that. I think there has to be a willingness and an understanding that, um, communicating with a, um, a child, a first grader, that I, that you want to do that. You know, the person in the pew that maybe doesn't have a first grader at their home, they have to want to have that, you know, communication with them. Um, that's the first step, I guess. You know, being paying attention to language is really important. Um, pastors could really take a lesson from that. Um, I, I think in our worship services, you know, a children's Bible could be used every once in a while reading the scripture, you know, um, sitting in the pews, maybe, maybe bat put on your knees, you know, and seeing the church at that, at that level, Right. <laughs> for a few minutes. I don't know. I'm being maybe silly about that, but I'm just saying there has to be, you know, I, I want children to be welcomed in congregations so badly. And and like I said back, you know, that I want them to be asked to serve, but there has to be a willingness and, and people have to think, oh, this is important, you know, and, and not because children are the church of the future, but because they're the church right now, you know, I, I cringe when people say that. I know they mean well when they say that. That is not the truth. If the children are present in, at that church, they are right, the church right now, you know, so sorry, get a little bit excited about that. <laughs> I've heard ministers, many ministers say that they felt like the children's message in a worship service connected with the adults more than maybe their sermon. Uh, why do you think that is? Because they've, they're trying to relate to a, a different age group. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and maybe make it a little more personal, you know, come, you know, you have to be careful about object lessons of old, you know, you can't get too into that. You want to keep it on the scripture. The The children's message needs to be on the scripture, but I think maybe they just try to relate it to the children. And so then it becomes relatable to everyone, you know, I guess. 
I think we learn by by doing and observing mm-hmm. as well. I know when I served in the local church, if we celebrated the sacraments, I'd invite the younger people to come forward so that they could get a better view Absolutely. because of the height. Mm-hmm. And I'm not real tall to begin with, so I, I can be sensitive to that. But, <laughs> you know, if you have people standing or if you can't see over the pew or barely see over the pew or the, the shoulders that are in front of you, you're not able to see like the sacrament of baptism. Exactly. Because That's, I was going to say, and invite them for baptisms as well. Yeah. Yeah. To sit in the front pews and the same with the Lord's Supper as well, to be able to see the cup and the pitcher, to be able to see the bread broken. Um, that's significant to us as disciples of Christ. Um, and, but it, that also includes in a community of faith to children as well. So I think we learn by doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've been talking about conveying and pointing our young people to God and God's presence. Chody, when do you feel God's presence in your life? When do you know that God is, is available to you and nearest to you? I have a, several answers, I think, for that. I have a kind of a ritual these days that I like to do, and that is get up. I'm, I'm a morning person, so I get up pretty early anyway. But I have a special chair, and I like to read whatever devotion or whatever I'm reading at the time and have my coffee and be quiet. And um, that's one place that I meet God, I would say. Um, I don't really ever feel like God's not with me, though. So it's not like I have to show up in that chair, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But I do like that. Um, I really connect to God through people a lot, too. Um, There's just been lots of times over my life that I feel like, God's presence has been really conveyed to me through people, you know. We were talking a couple of weeks ago as we were uh, planning for this faith conversation. And when we were in our discussion, we were talking about a recent event in your life. In April of 2021, you were diagnosed with cancer. Are you comfortable in sharing that experience with me and where you are now and how that's impacted you and your faith? I am. I appreciate you asking because it is, you know, now just a part of my everyday life. So it it, it seems odd not to talk about it, you mm-hmm. know, but it is, it can be the elephant in the room <laughs> right. with people. And when I was diagnosed, I was told that that would be the case. So it's not that I have to talk about it, you know, 24 hours a day, um, but it is comforting to have a conversation about it sometimes, believe it or not, just because um, it is a part of our our everyday life. But um, yes, in April of 2021, I wasn't feeling very well, um, and I went in to my primary care doctor 
who immediately recognized some things in me that she had never seen before and sent me to have a CT scan. And um, I was originally diagnosed with um, ovarian cancer, some more tests done, and then um, discovered that I had stage four metastatic breast cancer. So let's, let's pause, let's pause here for a moment and let's talk about what that is and what that means. Sure. A part of that was that got me sent to a different doctor before I got that diagnosis. They knew I had cancer, but, um, they sent me to this other doctor who is still my doctor today. And he is doing a normal, like, chit chat at the beginning of this visit (laughs) and I in my mind while he's talking and I should have been paying better attention I was thinking oh this is not even going to be breast cancer because I had my mammogram you know not long ago and nothing showed up so he's about to tell me that this is really not anything instead he said just the opposite of that, um, that it was stage four metastatic breast cancer, meaning that the cancer began in my breast, but had spread to other places. And what that means is that it is a treatable cancer, but not a curable cancer so that I will, you know, live with it for the rest of my life and will be in treatment of some sort, um, for the rest of my life. So that was quite um, an announcement, let me just say. Um, when you heard that news, were you by yourself? Was oh no, Kip, Kip with you? Yes. Or your, your daughters? Okay. No, Kip was with me. Um, like I said, we'd kind of played, downplayed it going into this appointment because we thought we knew, <laughs> you know, all the things. Um, but um, anyway, we didn't. And so, you know, there was uh, the rug pulled out from under your life experience, you know. And um, so I immediately started um, a treatment, which for metastatic breast cancer, um, it's quite different than other stages of of breast cancer, um, I learned, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about it, you know, and, and I fought with my doctor, as a matter of fact, because I couldn't understand why I wasn't having a mastectomy, why I wasn't going to do chemo, all of those big things that you always hear about breast cancer. And one thing I, first thing I learned was that now breast cancer or probably other cancers too, are all treated so different than they used to be. There used to be just kind of like one thing you did, but now it's based off genetics, um, the treatments that they will use. Um, so it's very personalized. So whatever uh, treatment you're going through, the next person is probably going to be doing something totally different. There's all these new drugs out there that are being successful. So so that's that's one thing. I only knew one little thing. Right. Well, that, that's know? informative. So mm-hmm. it's not that catch all of 20, no. 30 years ago of no. of when 
we have a family member or friend or a colleague that says, I have cancer and we automatically have the treatment plan run, yeah, run through our mind, that is no longer the case. Exactly. So, so we should keep quiet or inquire more of what that personal health care plan looks like. Exactly. It's very different. And, you know, some of those things may happen eventually in my journey with this, but um, I said I fought with my doctor because I thought I, you know, I thought he thought I was too far gone or something or that I wasn't tough enough to handle chemo. You know, I even <laughs> said that to him like a crazy woman, <laughs> but he was like, no, Jody, that's not what um, I'm doing here. What we're doing is we're, we're going to use the drug that is the absolute best drug to fight your cancer. And we're going to use it as long as it's working. And then when it's not working, we're going to find the next scenario. So with, with stage four, um, it's, they don't want, they want your quality of life to be good because the cancer is not going to totally go away. So with lower stages of cancer, they, you know, they just want to eradicate it as much as they can and get it gone completely. Um, but this is a little bit different approach. It still doesn't completely make sense to me sometimes, but, and, and when it doesn't, I go to that doctor and I tell him, I say, can you explain that to me again? You know, even two years into it. And he does, he's very patient. And um, he often will come into my appointments and say, oh, I just got a report from, you know, name off this organization. Here's the next, here's the third line drug we're going to use on you with this one stops working. You know, he already has a plan, you know, two or three lines of defense for me. Um, so yeah. for example, help me out mm -hmm. the current treatment plan that you have, the assumption is that it will not always work and there will have to be another one. So what you're doing now mm -hmm. may not work next year or three years from now. Exactly. Exactly. But w when I first started, though, I thought things in much shorter terms. I thought, oh, um, I mean, yeah. And, and so he quickly told me that we had time for this to work. But then the big thing that happened was I got involved with a support group who had other women in the support group that had metastatic breast cancer. Um, and, and that's kind of unusual. You don't, there's not a lot of people you can find <laughs> with that. And some of them had been on the drug that I'm currently used like seven, eight years. That was like a pivotal moment for me because literally I thought if, if you really want to know the truth, when I got that diagnosis, it was in April. I, in my mind, I thought I might not live to Chris, you know, and to see Christmas. I mean, that's, I felt bad. Uh, the drugs hadn't started working and it was such a devastating diagnosis, but then I started feeling better and my doctor started giving me positive, um, information. And I met people, you know, who had been on the drug for that long and, you know, uh, the hope, <laughs> the hope started coming back, you know, 
So, so I'm very hopeful now. I, I feel good and um, I live life to the full. And I mean, I try to fill it with all the things I love, as much of them as I can <laughs> all the time. So you ask Kip, he says that he wishes the doctor would tell me to slow down a little bit. So, <laughs> so I wouldn't run him so ragged all the time. But anyway, <laughs> I have a tough question for you, Okay, but I'm asking in context that maybe it could help others. Sure. There was a period of, I'm sure that was dark for you. And how did you, how did you get through that? what well did you draw from? How, mm -hmm. how did your faith and your family and your friends speak to you during those, those dark times? If you, if you were in April and you didn't think you were going to make it to the Christmas that December, that's a, that's a dark space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I I would like to say that I prayed a lot, but I couldn't pray so much. I mean, I was in the presence of God, but there were not words. I I couldn't say the words because I didn't know what to say. But I knew that everybody else was praying for me, and so there was such great comfort in that. Um I would get, you know, Kip was very close. My, my girls were very close to me physically, you know, and, um, I would get text messages and emails and phone calls and food would show up and literally cards in the mail from churches that I had never attended or didn't even know anybody there. I didn't think, but they would tell me that they were praying for me. And I, it, it finally dawned on me and I settled down, so to speak, in the fact that I didn't have to have the words because other people um, were saying those words, you know. Um, so I um, had, I did very much have such great support from uh you know, Kip, Madison, Devin, I have a, a circle of friends that I call the pillars uh, that lift me up, you know, and, um, and the Bryn Haven Church, just, I mean, I just can't even go on and on about the amount of support, you know, that I had. And it was also helpful that there were times I didn't want to answer text messages or emails or see anybody and people respected that as well um so yeah and and then i started feeling better and i could start um putting putting words to my own prayers then and i also during that time discovered a writer by the name of kate bowler I don't know if you're familiar with Kate Bowler, but mm -hmm. she um, and she, I I read one of her books. Actually, I, I listened to it and she read it to me, you know, so it was like she was in the room with me. It was wonderful. And that was um, 
she was diagnosed um, at 36, I think, with stage four cancer. And so she, in the first book that I discovered of hers, um, she tells about that experience. So that was an amazing thing for me to hear somebody else, you know. I think it's amazing. The community of faith Mm -hmm. had words when you didn't. Absolutely. I, I, um, and I have a little different feeling about it than some people. And I had a lot of people that allowed me to express it in that, you know, um, there were days that I didn't have to be happy about it and I didn't have to, you know, this is not fun. Cancer is horrible and I'm not going to act like it all fun you know or or that you know I this may be controversial but you know oh that there this is happening for a reason and you know some of those kind of cliches that people say when they're nervous and they don't know what else to say you know those I have to reject those sometimes and I just or sometimes I'm nice and smile and and then I'm behind closed doors, I kind of scream, you know, about it because, you know, I don't know that I've, I've, I don't know. I, I just feel like in times like this, you're just not going to be happy all the time and you're not going to understand why this is happening. And you question God about it. I know I do. And it's not that I don't think God is with me. I do. Um, but I don't like this God, you know, and I don't like the thought that, um, I might not be around for an event in the future that I want to be here for, you know? So, um, I'm pretty honest now, (laughs) now I didn't have words for a while, but then when my words came back, you know, they were pretty honest. Um, uh, so anyway, when. When we were uh, talking a couple of weeks ago and planning our schedules, you had shared with me that um, now you you don't wait. You go and you if you there's something that you want to do or experience, you go and you do it. So talk more about that because after we hung up, I was like, "Wow, that's I can't always do that." but maybe I can. I don't know. You got me thinking about it. I never really saw that as an option, but could you talk more deeply about that? Um, well, like I said, not, you know, after a few months, I don't even really remember how long, because now I go to the doctor every month, sometimes a couple times a month. So it all really blends together. But, um, when I did start sort of feeling better, I started asking, you know, I started wanting to do this and that and my children and husband and friends were like, Jody, you need to rest. You need to rest. You know, so I finally just asked the doctor, I said, so do I need to rest? Am I really hurting myself by wanting to go on a trip to Florida to see my best friend or, you know, um, and go to Disney and stay there for 12 hours if I c- can possibly make it, you know. Um, and he's, 
like, no, you're not doing, you're not hurting. You can't do anything to your cancer by that, by, by living your life that way. He says, but he says, I do think you need to do all those things. But when your body says it's tired, then you rest. So that is my philosophy. Now I do as much as I can possibly do. Um, and when I'm tired, I rest. So what words of wisdom do you have for those of us who don't know what to say mm-hmm. when we know of a loved one who has cancer? And Jody, your cancer is still with you. So when we say things, oh, well, maybe that's God's plan, or oh, <laughs> Jody, you look great, wonderful, <laughs> you no longer look sick, mm-hmm. help us. For those who are partnering with those who are sick, who have cancer, that isn't going to be eradicated, what are healthy responses? What are helpful responses that we can share with another? You know, and I think this depends on the person, you know, because I've heard my kind of approach sometimes is not the same as other people, but, but I think mainly having an openness to talk about it you know, it is very strange to be in a room of people and it it's obvious they don't want to talk about it, you know, that that's hard um, because it's now a part of my daily life. It will be forever. So, you know, it's not like um, I don't think about it every day. Um, so, and again, I don't need to talk about it every day or I mean all the time, but I just, um, okay, just a willingness, you know, when the time is right to talk about it. I almost it would prefer that as opposed, you know, the, the things that you may or may not say that are right or wrong or, you know, those I can almost live with better than kind of being ignored, you know, but um, I do get told all the time. Oh, you look so good. <laughs> my, my, I always want to respond with, man, I must have really looked bad before <laughs> because I have stage four cancer and I get more compliments now than I ever did before. But no, I just, that, I'm just joking about that. But, um, but, well, I, 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 but I did, I did ask. I think we yeah. feel, I think we fill the room or the space with words because we don't know what to say. And I think you have this opportunity to go, here's what may be helpful for someone who has cancer. Well, I think, I think not thinking, you know, what's going on is one thing, Um, Mm. like an open-ended question about, well, tell me what's going on with you now is a good question for me because I've I'd be glad to tell you in a short way, you know, as opposed to saying you look so good. So you're all better now, you know, or something like that, you know, assuming that because I look a certain way right now that I am all better, you know. Um, But I do think that open endedness, a willingness to let me tell you uh, what is happening is probably the way to go. I, I bet, but you know, TJ, I hate to do this, but I will say like in my support group, um, that I still go to 
some people in that group don't want to talk about it at all. So I, I don't understand that, uh, but um, that's their choice. So I guess that's an, another opportunity for an open-ended question about, do you feel comfortable talking about it? You know, um, I think that is the way to talk with someone um, rather than just assuming, you know, does that make, mm -hmm. does that make sense? I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wanted to ask. Mm -hmm. it's going to depend on the person. Yeah, it's going for to sure. Depend on the mm -hmm. context. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you made me think by, oh, the comment of, oh, you look, you know, great or so much better or good really is uh, an affirmation for the other person to go, oh, thank you. It, it, it puts a book in to the conversation before it can even get started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> think those comments are well-meaning. I do feel good right now. And hopefully that means that I look healthy or whatever. Um, <laughs> um, and, and sometimes I will tell people when I know they're confused by that, I'll, I'll say, or the, or the other question is, how are your treatments going? Or, you know, what is your last, you know, how's things going? you know, and I'll say, well, they're good. Oh, great. You know, and sometimes it leads into me saying, you know, I still do have cancer in my body, but I'm doing well. The The treatments are keeping it. Uh, it's not growing. It's not changing, but it is still there. And that, um, that either shuts somebody up or that, <laughs> And they find a convenient way to run or they are, then we have a conversation and it ends, you know, appropriately, however. But um, sometimes it's good to tell people that because I think some people just don't understand it because it is different than all the other stages of cancer. Um, like I said earlier, I'm still trying to understand that myself. It is different. Um you know, if somebody goes through chemo and they lose their hair, you know, they're going through that. There's a physical thing you can see when their hair grows back. Usually that means they are past their treatment and cancer is probably gone from their body. So with metastatic, it is hard to figure it out. I don't have those physical cues like other people do because all of that has not happened yet in my journey. If it happens, you know, I don't know. I don't know. That may be more, <laughs> more information than you want, but um, it is an interesting journey. I, I will say I, yeah, I try to be gentle with people and explain it because I think most times people have my interest in heart. They want to know, but they don't understand it because it is, like I said, so different than other, other cancers. Right. Well, where you are today, has your relationship with, with God changed in the midst of this life changing event? Is it deeper? Is it stronger? How is it conveyed with other relationships in your life? You're a different person than you were in April of 2021. 
I think I'm pretty plain spoken with God. <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly what you're asking, but that's the first thing I thought of. Like I said before, my prayers before might have been a little, um, uh, I don't know what the word I, now I feel like it's very raw and um, personal to me, you know, with my prayers. I, I, I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, um, I'm still, um, maybe I'm still processing that myself, to be honest. Uh, you know, but again, I, I will say again that um, I have people in my life that very much connect me to God when I am not feeling connected or, you know, I have people that pull me in and if that makes sense and love me and connect me again. So, uh, you know, people are very important to my, <laughs> my relationship to God. Yeah, can you imagine having the life-changing events that we all do mm-hmm. and not have a community no, of faith I, I can't. To, to draw from? Man, no. What an absence of having to experience life and the changes that come, unforeseen changes alone. And I and I do think, even though I haven't explained it too well, that ability to be able to say the rawest things while I'm sitting in my chair with my coffee and I'm just saying to God, you know, God, this is really ridiculous. And I may use even stronger words than that, but I won't do that on your podcast. But, um, <laughs> you know the ability that I feel like I can just say those things and it doesn't hurt my relationship with God. I feel like sometimes I, in other people, I hear, you know, different language that they use when they talk to God. And I'm like, geez, I don't, I, I just have to lay it out there. Cause mm. you know, yeah. If that makes well, sense. Yeah. God is bigger than our words and bigger than our problems. Mm-hmm. And it's okay, it's okay to question and to be mad about things that are not going the way you want them to go, you know. This has slowed me down a little bit. I I had to not do some things I didn't want to do. Now now I I feel like I'm back up to full speed. (laughs) But, um, yeah, but there's always a fear. And um, of what might be, of course. And, you know, um, I think it's okay to, to voice that and not, um, and not hold that in and say, oh, um, God, God's taking care of me and that kind of thing. And I, I, I love people who feel that way. I'm not trying to discount that, but I, mine is just a more of a, um, yeah, God is taking care of me, but I, I could, I'm scared some days. I'm, I worry some days. I, um, and then other, and most days are joyful and great, but, but I have the range of emotions with, with this cancer. I do. That's beautiful in and of itself. 
to be allowed to have the range, the range of emotions, and it'd be all right. Well, it's all right with me. I don't know if it's all right with everybody else, but <laughs> that's the way I've been able to survive. <laughs> uh, I think I like this new Jody. <laughs> well, you have a unique perspective of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church because you get to see it from the height and the eyes and experience <laughs> from the level of young people. So what do you think our young people are currently bringing to the church and what more they'll be bringing as they get older? How will that impact the future of the church? What will that look like? Well, you know, they bring joy and great love. And they also see a lot of things that um, we'd like to pretend they don't see, <laughs> you know, in the world. And so um, they're going to bring a lot of leadership and all of those things I just said, if we allow them to, um, I think um, we're going to have to have an openness to Oh, I'm going to use this word I sh shouldn't use, but we're going to have to ha have an openness to change. Uh, <laughs> most controversial thing I've said, um, you know, because we can't do everything the way we've always done it and reach the children, the youth, even the adults in our congregations. Um, so we may not hear those voices if we can't decide how to how to um to tweak I'll use that word tweak what we're doing enough to um make it you know a welcoming situation at our churches you know or may make our programs at a time when a child can even be there and their families can can get them there or are willing to get them there um, we get so wrapped up in um, this is the way we've always done it. And this is the time that Sunday school occurs, 930. That's when you learn about the Bible. Um, no, you can learn at other times. Um, so, um, you know, I, I just see that a lot right now um, that we're struggling to figure out how to make that old model work still and in some churches it's working and so I applaud that and I think keep going you know with that I, but I would bet that they've tweaked things somewhere along the way but um, a little bit but I just I feel like churches that are struggling right now they need to really dig deep about just making it meet the needs of the people that they have, not it the, the people they have having to do it exactly the way they've always done it, if that makes sense. And I, and I also think about those churches um, that don't have a lot of children, and there's still so many ways they can minister to children. Um, I would be willing to bet that 
there's grandparents in that congregation and they have grandchildren. They can minister to them in some ways. Um, There's children in the community. They can figure out a way to minister to children without the children being in their church building. Um, Again, they just have to be willing to to do that. But um, I think that just broadens the scope of our love and our understanding of God so much to have those relationships with people of other generations. And that goes for the children too. You know, of course, they gain a lot from, you know, being involved with other generations. Yeah. And to approach a life with abandon and questions and curiosity, those often come at a younger age and we need to pour that out on us who are older, the mm-hmm. spirit of of curiosity and experimentation mm-hmm. um, with a minimal mm-hmm. amount of fear for those who climb tall trees and <laughs> wheelies on bicycles and try out new sports and horse riding and reading books that they've never heard of before and having books being read to them and coloring with finger paint and pencil and pen. There's just so much that is new. Taking walks and going on trips, those first experiences, they're wonderful. And to be able to see the world through the eyes of someone else at any age, I know it takes an act of humility, but it's worthwhile. Yeah. All those things you just described sounds like children's fest. <laughs> we do we do almost all of those in one day. <laughs> well, it seems like a good place to pause here. So let's put in another plug. Children's Fest, July of twenty twenty three. Give me the dates again. July the fifteenth, um, nine to three thirty at Bethel University. Um and yeah, where can, I, I, I give people, shameless can, plugs all the time. <laughs> where can people find more information? Where can they register? Well, registration's not open yet. It usually opens the 1st of May or so like that. Um, okay. Um, the best place is, I guess, um, currently... I'm your best bet. Um, the, there's nothing updated quite yet on on the website, but um, eventually it'll be on our website. But um, yeah, to email me, I'll be. Things are about to start happening about that, you know, like promotionals and things like that. So all right, anyway. well, all right. So look <laughs> look for updates and social mm-hmm. media, yes. the ministry council website. Mm-hmm. Yes. And look for registration to open up in May yes. for the Children's Fest. Yes. And then that way you'll be able to meet Jody Rush. If you haven't met her before, you'll be able to meet her in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and you can tell me how wonderful I look. <laughs> how about that? <laughs> yeah. I guess we shouldn't leave that part of it away. You will take compliments at any time. Yes, I will. I take them very well. <laughs> Jody, thank you for being vulnerable for the podcast and sharing yourself with me and sharing with others. Um, it's been a privilege to work with you as a coworker, 
Well, thank you, TJ. I appreciate it. I appreciate you very much. Thank you for listening to this faith journey on Cumberland Road. To support this podcast, subscribe, follow, and share with others. As Jody has dedicated her life to helping and nurturing children, here is Madeline, who is seven years old, to close this episode. Kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy for the body. Proverbs 16 verse 24.